You take out your Bibles, Romans chapter 11, as we continue along with the Apostle Paul here as he concludes on the next two studies that we'll have, his treatment of the doctrinal issues here in the book of Romans, and most importantly, uh, this incredible picture of God's chosen people, Israel, and their place in God's divine plan. And there are so many questions that we would draw from the way the world is functioning even today. It seems like we can hardly go a 24-hour news cycle without there being some uh, very specific thing with regard to the nation Israel and some very specific problem normally that is blamed upon them. As I've shared with you previously, it seems like from the perspective of the world that the world would love if the Jewish people would cease to exist. And yet God's purpose, God's plan, and God's program clearly says that in the last days God has a plan for national Israel, and that plan is that one day all Israel, exactly as the prophet Isaiah had said, that one day all Israel would be saved. We reached that uh, pinnacle in our passage tonight. And as we continue now, uh, would you pray with me as we ask God to speak uh, through the power of this passage. Lord, we have come uh, with the purpose of understanding your word. We pray that your word itself, as it is alive, would be alive to us. That our minds would be open, our ears attentive to what your spirit would have to say. And so we give you this time and pray that you would bless it, Lord, as we study Uh, Would you give us ears to effectively hear and understand what the Spirit is going to speak to us? We ask these things in the amazing name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Verse 11, here in Romans 11. And I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? And so the picture here is one of finality. The Apostle Paul begins this next section by really speaking a question, as he often does. He's saying, have they stumbled so far that they're going to kind of be like those buttons you wear around your neck that says, help, I've fallen and can't get up. That's the picture. I've fallen down, I can't get up. And so he, he says, certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy. In other words, there's a reason behind God's sovereign workings in everything. And while we might look at the way the nation Israel today is even treated in our world and say, we could ask, have they, have they fallen? Is, is God forsaken them? Much the same context as really we've seen for the last couple of chapters. But he's now going to bring it to a, a head, to a conclusion, and begin to, to point us towards the future the wonderful future that God has for the nation Israel. Salvation has come to the Gentiles, and so it provokes the Jewish people. Uh, To this day, when you travel to Israel, if you get a chance, we'll be announcing our 2018 uh, trip here very shortly. If you get a chance, I want to strongly encourage you uh, to go. But but when you go, you're going to see that there, there is some provoking to jealousy that occurs even today. But there, there's a kind of a wonder, why is it that all of these Christians are making these tours to Israel 
and the Jewish people kind of kind of look with a little bit of concern at times, and you'll you'll see it even in the attitudes occasionally. Because salvation has come. We're fairly settled, amen, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior to the glory of God the Father. And so we do wander around with our heads lifted high, saying we're children of the King. And that sometimes is an irritation to the Jewish people. Salvation has come. But now if their fall is riches for the world... And again, so important that you realize this is national Israel that's being spoken of. This is not the church. It can't be applied to the church. It has nothing to do, in essence, with the church in in its real application. Very clear who this is talking about. It's going to get clearer as this chapter continues. It's riches to the world. It is riches to the world because the gospel came to the Jew first. Amen? And because of that rejection, the gospel then went to the Gentiles. That is the ultimate riches to the Gentile world. And in fact, you and I are the direct recipients of those riches that we have in Christ Jesus, who is our Savior. For their failure, riches for the Gentile, how much more their fullness. Now he begins to turn the corner. He's starting to say, look, this is for a period of time. This is not indefinite. God still has a wonderful, amazing plan to save the Jewish people. It is still, in our day and time, in, in a large sense, yet future, though individually right now, anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord, Jew or Gentile alike, will, will receive the grace of God. So it's not impossible right now But one day it's going to become a national salvation. In other words, they're going to become, as a people, believers in Messiah. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, and I magnify my ministries. And look, I've given you an example. I'm actually using myself. If by any means I may provoke the jealousy of those who are my flesh to save some of them. He's saying, look, the fact that I'm teaching you the fact that I've actually come to you with this incredible message of the, salving, the saving grace of Jesus Christ should make my countrymen a little bit upset. And oh, were they upset. It got Paul beat up. It got him thrown out of cities. It got him chastised around every corner. Uh, he, he was given 39 stripes more than once. Uh, it was a costly thing for him to provoke his own people to jealousy that he in fact had a relationship with the true and the living God. For if they're being cast away as reconciling of the world, which it is, amen, we, we have the gospel specifically because the gospel came to us because it was rejected by the Jewish people. If the Jewish people had received it, I really don't know what the world would look like right now. I can tell you this, it would have a strongly Jewish influence, more so than it does right now, but they didn't receive it. it says they, they were of my flesh. I was hoping they'd get saved, but they're being cast away is actually a, a, a benefit. In other words, a reconciling by God to, of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So when the light goes on, Paul is basically saying the Jewish people will, will actually undergo 
what is equivocated here to a resurrection. They'll, they'll be as if they were dead and they've come back to life, which is, by the way, the very thing that begins with the, the prophecy of the dry bones in the book of Ezekiel, that there's a, there's a coming together of the sinew and the bones and muscle goes on it, and they'll go back into the land, ultimately culminating uh, with a national revival that's going to come to Israel. We'll get more into this in a little bit. So some questions come up. If salvation has come to us Gentiles, which it has, if you're here tonight and you're saved by grace and through faith, you ought to be really happy about that. Amen? I'm happy about it. Now, I'm a little bummed because I, I wish everyone had seen it, including all of the Jewish people that have ever lived. But I know this. God is true to his word. And he made some very strong covenant promises with the Jewish people, and he absolutely is going to occur. He is going to keep those promises. He's not going to cast them off. And at the heart of this, and and I want to make this really clear to everyone, at, at the heart of this understanding is a couple of very horrific Theologies. One of them is replacement theology. That because God has, up to this point in time, not seen fit to bring forth a salvation to national Israel, that it is never going to happen, and these passages should be spiritualized and should no longer be viewed as ever going to happen to, na- to national Israel. Replacement theology says that we, the church, have replaced the Jewish people. That, to me, personally, is heretical. Because I believe that Scripture is very clearly making a distinction between national Israel and the church. The second is the rise of anti-Semitism. A hatred for the Jewish people that has led to the persecution of the Jewish people. And the church has been part of that persecution for a very, very, very long time. Some elements of it. And so it it comes into view when you deal with these chapters once again. But God has made promises to his people, and he's going to give us a couple of examples of of how that's going to happen. There are three tragedies that are mentioned here. Number one, that they fell. Number two, that they were lost. And, And number three, they were cast away. That sounds like a pretty dire situation, amen? Those things are true. There's no denying that. Israel rose for a while. They rose to a point. They were supposed to be God's ambassadors on this earth, continuing to shed the light of Christ ultimately upon this world. And they said, well, we're, we're stopping it here because as far as we're concerned, it's the law, it's the temple, it's religion, it is righteousness by the works of the law. That's what makes us comfortable. And so God says, I, I, that's not what I want for you, but if that's what you want for yourself, for a time, you're going to be set aside, and I'm going to allow the Gentile church to rise. But here's something you have to keep in mind. The Gentile church, us, we who are believers who are not Jewish, is on the decline. The Gentile church in the world is on the decline. The number of Bible-believing churches, Bible-teaching churches, churches who rightly hold and esteem the Word of God is not growing, it's shrinking. The church itself may be growing in numbers, but there are churches who are filled with people who are no longer being taught the word of God. They're being taught just about everything but. They're being taught how to save money. 
They're being taught how to, you know, get along in marriage. They're being taught about social things. They're being taught about politics. They're being taught about all kinds of stuff. But they're not being taught the Word of God anymore. That's a problem. Because your Bible says that's the church of the last days. When you see that church beginning to be the church, it's getting near the end of the time of the church. Now, while I'm not trying to be a prophet of doom here, I do believe that we are in the last days. And that where we stand right now is on the cusp of, once again, God beginning to deal with national Israel in a way to draw them to himself. And so in this passage, we see a couple of examples, the first of which is a very interesting one, and it's a lump of dough. And, and it's really, it, it's a perfect picture uh, of that heave offering that was in Numbers chapter 15. Uh, and notice what is said. For if the first fruit is holy, then the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. In other words, if the patriarchs somehow managed to pull off the holiness of God, which they did, read Hebrews chapter 11 if you want proof of that, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, if the first lump was holy, the first little bit, you see, because here's what would happen, that that part of that dough would be offered up to God as a symbol that the entire lump belonged to God. And so they'd take the first bit of it, it would be offered to God and declared holy. And so he's drawing on this feast offering, uh, same idea exactly as the, as the feast of first fruits, by the way. So he takes this, this picture that if this is holy, then the, all of the rest of it is also holy. So he's saying, look, there's holiness that still is in view for the Jewish people. Now, while they may not be walking in all of their blessings right now, God has not forgotten that he made that promise to them. He's going to keep it. A basic idea is basically whatever God sanctifies, he sanctifies, period. He doesn't kind of sanctify it, and then, well, you know, I'm changing my mind. Hidden in this, I believe, is, is a stern warning. And it's a warning for the church, though it's not specifically spoken here. It's about remembering who we are. Because if that first fruit life of yours is holy, then your whole life is supposed to be holy. Not just a little bit of you. In other words, we're not part Jesus, we're all Jesus. When we say Jesus is Lord... He's supposed to be Lord of all, not Lord of part. He's not to be, supposed to be Lord of the peace. He's supposed to be Lord of the lump in that sense. Amen? You see, you can see this, this battle that's been raging because, in essence, the Jewish people were kind of proud about the fact they were the lump. And in fact, when those first holy people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
began to preach holiness, they were not exactly popular, were they? Matter of fact, they were rather unpopular. And so throughout the history of Israel, what happened? There was rebellion. Rebellion would rise up. The people would cave in and begin to worship false gods. They would follow after the Ashtaroth. They would follow after Baal. They would follow after the gods of the Canaanites because those gods were more fun. They involved sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I don't know how you did that on a liar, but you could do it, I guess. You see, generally speaking, what God is saying here is God is a holy God and he expects holiness out of his people. If the, if the little piece, if the first piece of the lump is declared holy, the whole lump is supposed to be holy. And what happened in the Jewish people's lives, in order to prove that to them, guess what God did? He sent some calamity. You can see it in the peoples of Syria and Phoenicia and Moab and Edom and the Philistines and the Canaanites. Every time the Jewish people turned the wrong direction, you know who they bumped into? Uh, A very strong adversary. Brothers and sisters, we are a holy people called out by God. We're supposed to be holy. And when we turn to false gods, you can expect to have adversaries in your life. For the Jewish people, you can see it even all the way up into our modern time. But they went through conquest after conquest and domination after domination. Babylon and Assyria and Greece and Rome. You could even throw in the Holocaust into that. It's like I'm speaking to you. We need to listen to that stern warning. Because both anti-Semitism, replacement theology... Christianized cults have all adopted things that dismiss national Israel. And just as much as it's wrong to dismiss national Israel as being holy and acceptable unto the Lord because the Lord still has a plan, so it is for a believer to walk in unrighteousness. We need to be what God's called us to be because we're supposed to be provoking the Jewish people into jealousy because we have the right standing with God and our lives should show it. We shouldn't be like those who are unsaved. So Paul's logic here is pretty irrefutable. Through Moses, God instructs them, gives them this newly delivered people. Remember when they got these? They were in the wilderness of sin. They were in the Sinai. They're wandering around in the desert. And and so the words that are used here are very meaningful. They're helpful to us. Basically, he's saying, if any part of what's offered to me is offered to me, then everything that's offered to me is mine. If the peace is mine, the lump is mine. So don't try and just make the peace holy, is what he's saying. Make the whole thing holy. You you can't set aside part of it. Just like there is no partial lordship in our lives as Gentile believers... There is no partial giving the nation to God. And God repeatedly refuted that thought process by all the calamity that came upon the Jewish people. The instruction actually there in Numbers 15 is is pretty poignant. He says, when you eat of the food of the land, you shall lift up an offering before the Lord. 
Of the first of you of your dough, you shall lift up a cake as an offering. In other words, you pull a piece off of it, and you're going to make a little cake out of it, and you, you give that to God. As the offering of the threshing floor, in other words, you wouldn't have anything if it weren't for me, so you shall lift it up. From the first of the dough, you'll give it to the Lord as an offering throughout your generations, he says. He says, you keep doing this because it's supposed to remind you that every single thing you have belongs to me. There isn't anything that we own as believers that belongs to us. It all belongs to God. We don't have any claim to his stuff. He's just made us stewards and overseers of it, and he is a holy and a jealous God. And in this, in this case, God's people, Israel, are that lump. And so he's not going to be unfaithful to, to, the, to the lump if he's been faithful to the peace. He's been faithful to the patriarchs. That's why their names are listed. By faith, Abraham. You say, I was faithful to them when they believed they were saved. I'll be faithful to the rest. You see, as you look at this, he goes on to give us another example, and it's that of an olive tree. And it's very much the same thoughts, the same concept. And it comes from the covenant that was made uh, to Abraham. There's an interesting thing about that covenant. When it was made with Abraham, Abraham didn't have to receive it. It was made by God apart from the reception of Abraham. Abraham, this is what I'm going to do, and it doesn't matter whether you receive it or not. It's yours. And so in that sense, what God said about the Jewish people, he said in an unconditional way. He didn't say, you're going to be my people if. He said, you are my people, so you should. Brothers and sisters, this is where it applies to us. God has said to us, you are my people. Be ye therefore holy as I am holy. Because we bear the, we, we bear the name of Jesus. You ever thought about that? It's like everywhere you go, you should have a little name. To, don't do it because it'll look Mormon. But you should have a little name tag that says, you know, follower of Christ. Amen? Because that's actually who we are to the world. We are, the word Christian means little Christ's. It's like mini Jesuses. Not good English, but it sounds kind of cool. We're like mini Jesuses. God said to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 51, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain, when he was the one, I called him, and I blessed him, and multiplied. He said, you know, and you look at Abraham's life, and God didn't bless Abraham because he was a stellar guy. Abraham, in a lot of ways, was a failure. He was a failure morally. He was a failure ethically. He was a failure as a father. He was pretty much a failure. So God didn't go, wow, there's awesome Abraham. I'm going to bless him. This is a picture of the character and nature of God. He says, there's something in Abraham that you can't see. And he's got a heart that's after me. And he's a man of faith. And so I'm going to bless that faith that's in him. 
just like God does with us today. And so he goes on to the second lesson. You pick up in the, the second half of verse 16. For if the root is holy, so are the branches. So if the patriarchs are holy, if that rootstock of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are holy, then so are the branches. This is an interesting thing. When you travel, again, put a little plug for Israel. When you travel to the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll be told by every tour guide, well, we don't know if these olive trees are actually the olive trees that were here during the time of Christ, but they will also tell you in the same breath, they very well could be, and here's why. Because the rootstock continues to stay alive in the ground for a very long period of time, and it travels very long distances and pops up wherever there's sufficient soil conditions to do so. And so the entire garden, there's actually only a handful of olive trees in, in there that are individual trees, but there are probably two or three trees that caused all the rest of those trees to be there. So when you're looking at them, these old, gnarled, olive trees in the garden of Gethsemane, they may have been cut down, chopped off, beat up, chewed up, spit out, used for firewood, but if the roots were left there, then those might well be the very same rootstock of the trees that were there during the time of Christ. It's a pretty picture of this. If the root is holy, then the branches are holy. a picture of national Israel through the patriarchs. And if some of the branches were broken off, which they were, still being broken off today, and you, now speaking to the church, a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, you you see, we were kind of the, the afterthought. We're like the wild branch. There was the one that God intended, and then there's us. And with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. You see, the Christian church has Jewish roots. That's a fact. Jesus, our Savior, is Jewish. When, when we speak of faith, the way we understand it is the faith of Abraham and the faith of Isaac. Those are the, those are the pillars of faith. Surely we could throw Paul and... Peter and some of the apostles in there. When you talk about faith, I want the faith of Daniel. Well, you know what? I know I'm going to the lion's den, but I know who's going to be in there with me. You see, those that came before are in view. Do not boast against the branches. In other words, you better be kind how you treat national Israel. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Ooh. It's kind of an interesting picture, isn't it? Can I tell you, in a practical sense, there'd be no Gentile church if it weren't for the Jewish Jesus, if there weren't for a Mary and a Joseph, if there weren't for an Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if there was no Israel. There'd be no church. It's why we should have a deep and abiding love for the Jewish people. Because the root structure of the church is deeply supported by Judaism. Much of what we understand 
about God comes from the Old Testament, by the way. You will then say the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. And well said. Did happen. Because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. But do not be haughty. But fear. For of God who did not spare the natural branches, they may not spare you either. Have you ever thought in an end time sense why it is the Lord might be a little bit miffed at the church? It's because he didn't spare the natural branches. I mean, look at the history of the nation Israel, including right now, today, tonight. Look at what God has allowed in their lives. He did not spare the natural branches. He's not going to spare the grace branches either, the wild ones. Because think about it. We kind of had it easy, didn't we? I don't know about you. You guys haven't slaughtered any animals today, I'm pretty sure. Nobody's been out collecting sticks and making sure that you have the right sticks for the right offering. You're not worrying about whether you've saved up for doves. None of you are trying to make your way to the temple. You're not doing a pilgrimage to anywhere except uh, maybe Disneyland. Seems like we do make pilgrimages, but they're not normally to a temple anywhere. We need to be careful. You may not spare, spare us either. And therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell. God has been both good, and if you want to see that again when you travel to Israel, you'll see the goodness of God. It is amazing, it's mind boggling. You travel down the Jordan River Valley and you're wondering, how in the world can this be like this? Desert with a running mud puddle through the middle of it, and yet it's verdant and green and fruitful. And You drive along the north shore of the Sea of Galilee and you've got bananas on one side of the road and mangoes on the other side of the road. And there's no bananas and no mangoes in any other country in the Middle East. They produce most of the Middle East citrus. Their dates are so prized that even the Arabs who hate the Jewish people buy the dates as long as they don't brand them with anything Hebrew. It's crazy. The goodness and the severity of God. Severity, but towards you goodness. Even towards the Jewish people, a level of goodness. If you continue in his goodness... This is that picture of the perseverance of the saints. We've been obligated by God to persevere, to continue in the goodness that God has shown us. James one twenty two ought to be marked in every one of your Bibles. Be ye therefore doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. We're supposed to be doing what God's called us to do. It's not optional for us. I'll show you a little, let me just give you a little pastoral instruction. Virtually every single problem person that I deal with in my office, almost without exception, I'm only saying that because I can't actually recall an exception, but I'm leaving it open just in case there was one. Almost without exception, if they are a believer, their problem stems from not being a doer of the word. They know the Bible says this. 
They will even look me in the eye and they'll actually get mad at me. I know what the Bible says. They'll do this. (laughs) Or this. They'll quote me chapter and verse. And then they will begin their excuse as to why it does does not apply to them. Why they are the exception to God's holiness. Why whatever it says is good for you or me or anyone and everyone else. But in their circumstance and situation, they're still going to do exactly what it says not to do. Consider the goodness and the severity of God. And I don't say that to, you know, turn you into legalists. I'm just saying God means what he says and says what he means. When we live by grace, we walk by grace and through faith, amen? Don't you think that God is going to hold us accountable for the ease with which we have believed? Most of us in this room, I don't think there's anyone in here who has a martyr in their family for the cause of Christ. I do not believe that most of us, and again, I'm not dismissing anyone's personal issues or problems or or difficulties in life. I'm just simply saying it's pretty easy to be a believer here in America. Amen? Then I think we ought to consider the goodness and the severity of God. Not walk around in total fear, just in admiration for the fact that he's been so good to us. And that should cause us to be good back to him. And remember, he doesn't have to reward us for everything. He surely has given the Jewish people much grief because he loves them. God didn't spare those. He won't spare us either. And therefore, consider that severity towards you, goodness, if you continue in goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. He's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about relationship. This is not a salvation passage. He's simply saying because any Jew that believes can still be saved. So he's not saying you can't be saved. He's simply saying if if you want to test God, you're asking for him to give you circumstances and situations in your life that you will not like. He might just cut you off. You might just got, that's one of the things I fear about my own personal life. It's like, God, don't ever let me get haughty and proud to where I no longer fear you. Don't let me get to that place to where you no longer carry that much weight in my life. To where I can treat you like yesterday's big thing. God is able to graft them in again. And they will be grafted in. For if you were cut off of the olive tree, which was wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to the nature into a cultivated tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And so God says, there's a plan for national Israel. He is going to graft them back in. He's going to put the natural branches that have thus far experienced an awful lot of the severity of God. It's like every single day you read some senseless act of violence, some crazy thing that's going on in Israel, which never affects us who are there as, as tourists. 
It always affects Jewish people. It's forever some Jewish family walking next to the metro line that's run over. Basically, he's using this figure here to remind us Jesus himself did the same thing, by the way, in Matthew 24. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation or another people, and they will produce fruit. So Jesus said the same message. Gentile branches from all nations have been grafted into some rootstock that is very Jewish. I think it's one of the things that happens to you when you travel to Israel. You kind of get in touch with your Jewish roots. And you're kind of walking around and go, man, my Savior walked this road. My Jesus sat on that rock right there. One of my favorite places is the southern steps. And I can, I can imagine because we see Jesus teaching there so many times in the Gospels. And, and you, those same steps that are there, many of them are the same steps that Jesus would have sat on and instructed the disciples. That's getting in touch with the fact that we have a debt of gratitude to the Jewish people. And it's taken a lot to pre- preserve uh, anything that is left in Israel. And so Jesus, speaking kind of back and forth between his desire for national Israel and, and us as the, the wild branches, he's kind of given us the, the picture of that church at the last days. And you know, when we studied the book of Revelation, look, you don't want to be the church at Pergamos, amen? It says, look, Repent. Or I will make war against you. You don't want to be the church at Laodicea. You don't want God spitting you out of his mouth. That's the type of thing that the Lord's really speaking to us here. He's saying, look, I I, I want to be kind, but I'm also the other side if you make me do so. If you make me whack off the branch, I'll do it because I want to save the rootstock. Sometimes people will ask me, well, you know, God's a God of grace. I mean, how come he lets, you know, people get away with certain things and other people's? Because God is God. But don't test him. Don't think that you're going to be the one that's going to get away with that sin. Because in like manner, I can tell you, I have watched people go home to be with Jesus over sin. I've seen people killed in car accidents. I've watched people die of disease. I've seen people get terminally ill. I have seen all manner of things in people's lives where they begin to test God to find out whether he actually means what he says. Don't do it. I know this is a little heavy, but there are warnings in Scripture, and I think we need to heed them. You know, not everything in here is grace, grace, grace. Some of it's, you better remember who I am. So I'd be an unfaithful shepherd if I don't teach these passages the way they were intended. So don't get beat up. If the shoe fits, you know what to do with it. If the shoe doesn't fit, it's not for you. Amen? So don't be a wild branch. Be a fruitful branch. If God cut off apostate Israel, his chosen people in unbelief, I think he has an obligation to cut off the apostate Gentile church. 
Did you hear what I said? I think he has an obligation to cut off the apostate Gentile church. Churches that deny his name, churches that will not teach his word, churches where Jesus Christ is no longer Lord, I think those churches, God has an obligation to cut them off. Now, when he does it, I don't know. But here's the good news. Just don't be like that. You don't have to worry about it. Walk with the Lord. There's an interesting thing that begins in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. If you want to turn there, it's probably worth turning to. Revelation 11, verses 1 through 4. And it's a picture of days that have not yet come upon us. It's a picture of days that lie still yet ahead. It's during that time which we call the tribulation. It will very specifically be during the last half or the great tribulation. So the Antichrist is risen. He's come on the scene. He's begun to do his peace treaty. He's made a peace treaty with Israel. The temple is rebuilt. The temple is now standing on the Temple Mount. So we know this hasn't happened because there's no temple on the Temple Mount. And there hasn't been one since A.D. 70. So we still have some time here. But I want you to notice what it says. And it's speaking of the future restoration of Israel. It's found here in the very last days, Revelation 11. And there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it and leave out the court which is outside the temple. Guess what court that is? It's the court of the Gentiles. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. And they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. That would be three and a half years, by the way. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. And these two, check this out, are two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. That's a picture of the very last days. And it's very much a picture that ties in to what Paul's saying here in Romans. He's saying in the very last days, there's going to be a rise in attention to the things of the Lord, but it's going to happen in a very specific group of people, and they're going to be governed by two olive trees and two lampstands. And I believe you have a picture here that is fairly easily discernible as to who these are. And basically what he's saying is during that time, uh, exactly, by the way, as the prophets Daniel and Amos and Haggai and Micah and Zechariah all prophesy, the Gentiles are doing this and the Jews are doing this. It's going to be an inverse equation. The Gentiles have descended. Their time is over. The times of the Gentiles, as Scripture says, will be complete. And so the Jewish people begin to rise. And so the Gentiles are left out. And so John sees this measuring of the temple. And I believe it's indicating that salvation has now come to the Jews. And speaking, they've seen him. It's the very thing that both Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor of Jerusalem were heading towards. And I think they're a type of these two olive trees, speaking of the, of the leadership of the Jewish people. Both the civil leadership and the religious leadership will finally say, look, we're serving the Lord. I don't care what you do. 
Don't care what you rise to. The Jews of that day are going to know that they'd sinned. They're going to know uh, because the prophet Zechariah tells us a little bit about this time. And if you want to turn there, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 says this, And then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. And indeed, the Lord who had chosen Jerusalem does rebuke him. Is this not the brand plucked from the fire? And he goes on towards the end there in verses 8, 9, and 10. For I'm going to bring my servant the branch, who is none other than the Netzer, the Messiah, Jesus. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on the one stone are seven eyes, indicating the holiness of the Lord. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. That land is Jerusalem. That land is Israel. He's going to remove the iniquity. That has yet to happen. And then he goes on and gives us a clearer vision in that day. Speaking of the day of the Lord, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. That's not happening just yet. You see Joshua the high priest, Zerubbabel, the governor of Jerusalem, are, are this picture. You can see Zerubbabel if you just read chapter 4. You'll get, you'll get the whole picture of what's going on here. The prophet then begins to discuss, dis, discuss kind of the, the spontaneous and automatic provision uh, apart from any human agency in the latter part of chapter 4. It's just this incredible picture of the Lord moving and the Lord working and the Lord doing uh, ultimately, exactly what Zechariah chapter 12 says, and one day they will mourn him who they pierced. You see, God still has a plan. He has a wonderful future for national Israel. And though it's hard to see at times, it's hard to imagine at times, uh, it doesn't look like perhaps that's going to happen. But it is going to happen. And so when you think upon uh, what the Lord's trying to share with us tonight as we sit here, we have an obligation to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We have a promise that the Lord will bless those who bless them, national Israel. We know that God's plan includes that one day all Israel will be saved. And we'll finish this whole thought process up next week. But as the Apostle Paul is speaking about these things, he's going to quote from Isaiah, and he says, And a deliverer will come from Zion and remove the ungodliness of Jacob, and this is my covenant with them, that I will take away their sins. He's saying, look, this is going to happen. Those two witnesses there that you, that you see in Zechariah chapter, Zechariah chapter 3 and 4 and Revelation chapter 11, they're, they're going to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. That wouldn't be a thing that you'd be able to do today. But one day, the sad state of the spiritual lives of national Israel is going to be reversed. The Lord's going to come on the scene, and during that time, which for the world will be a time of great tribulation, the Lord is going to make good on this promise. And he's going to show them their goodness once again. The goodness that he's always had planned for them. 
May we be vessels that bear that goodness to the Jewish people. May we care enough to pray and seek their good. May we not get caught up in all the politics, the things that are clearly not from the Lord. God gave the Jewish people that land. It's, it's God's land, and he's given it to them as an inheritance. It's theirs. And if you want to be on the wrong side of God, then try giving away God's land to somebody other than the Jewish people. It's not a wise idea. It won't go well for any nation that undertakes that endeavor. And that's not what I think politically. That's what God's word says. Read Joel chapter 1, 2, and 3. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Because no matter how far they stray, the roots are still good. Because exactly as Exodus chapter 3, repeated by Jesus in Matthew 22, God is still the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Amen? Father, thank you for this time tonight. Pray that you would minister to us. God, help us to be lovers of Israel. Help us to be lovers of the Jewish people. Help us to be lovers of the lost, no matter where they reside. God, would you cause us to be effective, Lord, throughout this world for the spreading of the gospel. Help us to be true to your word, Lord, remembering both your goodness and your severity, exactly as this passage says. But we know that you have a plan that's still yet future for national Israel. And Lord, we want to be setting the stage for that to come to pass. So help us to preach the gospel. Help us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Lord, we love you and we thank you for tonight. And pray that you would bless us as your people. We ask all this in the blessed name of Jesus. God's people all said, Amen. 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 Would you stand?